Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Theory of Enchantment podcast. I'm your host, Chloe Valdry. This week I sit down with Arno Michaelis, a former white nationalist who is now a public speaker, an author, and a teacher who talks about love, healing, and the power of connection to counter violent extremism in the world. This is one of my favorite episodes, all-time favorite episodes. So if you listen to no other episode on the Theory of Enchantment podcast, be sure to listen to this one because it's pretty amazing. And as always, I, of course, appreciate your sharing, likes, retweets on social media, and uh, general sharing with your friends and family. Thanks for joining me, and I hope you enjoy this episode. speaking right now with Arno Michaelis. Yes, perfect. And you know what? I'll let you describe yourself. I what is what would you say is your bio, you know, how would you describe yourself? Well, I my bio is I'm a, a speaker, I'm an author, I'm an educator, and I'm a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And all of those things are kind of informed and in, in, in the context of my past as a former neo-Nazi skinhead. Mm-hmm. So let's dive right into that. Tell sure. us about that. Tell us, <laughs> tell us, tell us your story. Tell us about your life. Well, I I uh, grew up in a suburb of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It was uh, pretty well-to-do, mm-hmm. predominantly white, very conservative. Mm-hmm. By the standards of my neighborhood, like I was the poor kid, mm-hmm. but by global standards, I, our family was ridiculously wealthy. Sure. Um, nice house, nice neighborhood. I never went hungry, never took a beating. My parents were together. They both loved me very much. Mm-hmm. They let me know that all the time. Mm-hmm. Pretty much all the adults in my life were like constantly fawning over me. I was so wonderful and gifted and what a genius and he can do anything. Right. And and this is all like Monday morning psychoanalysis, like <laughs> looking back and trying to see where things went wrong and sure. trying to put my finger on it. Do you think it would have been better if they would have been more harsh on you? That gets brought up a lot. Okay. Like, a lot of people are like, you just needed a good ass whoop. Yeah. That's like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I can't necessarily dispute that. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, I was then and I remain like a person who, if I'm told I can't do something or mm-hmm. I have to do something, mm-hmm. that, I, that'll guarantee I'm not going to do it. Okay. Or I will do it or I'm not going to do it accordingly. Okay. Um. And so it had my parents been more strict with me, I it could have went even more wrong. Okay. Um, but it could have sorted it out too. Right. Like I, I can't say either way. Right. But um, it was funny with my parents. Like I was such a crazy kid. Mm-hmm. My parents have this like urban mythology about my childhood. <laughs> okay. My dad is a, is a wonderful storyteller. Mm-hmm. Uh, he gets real, real into hyperbole sometimes. Okay. But he'll be like, uh, yeah, when. Arnie was six months old. We found him 80 feet up in a tree in the backyard. And I was probably like two and 10 feet up in the tree. <laughs> but right. <laughs> that, right. It was that combined with like all other crazy. I was like constantly bolting. Mm-hmm. I, the, as soon as I could walk, I'd bolt out of the house and just go down mm-hmm. the road. 
and then they'd lock the door and I'd figure out how to unlock it mm -hmm. and then they'd put a hook way at the top of the door and I'd build a teetering mound of high chair phone books to scale and then pop the hook and then bolt very resourceful I was and I, <laughs> and I was always like had to be in constant motion yeah and then they, my parents took me to the doctor and they're like what the hell's wrong with this kid yeah and the doctor said oh there's nothing wrong with him he's just a, such a genius <laughs> The doctor said that yeah, also. Yeah, okay. surprisingly. Um, <laughs> and, and tragically, many kids in of that nature today mm -hmm. are, like, medicated into oblivion. Right. Um, Meaning but, they don't receive that same feedback. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, they, they don't get that leeway. Right. And um, instead, they typically get medicine that right. just, like... Calms them down. Yeah, zombies them out. Yeah. Um, and so that was kind of how I grew up, and, and everything was pretty idyllic, but... My father's an alcoholic, mm -hmm. and his drinking put a lot of pressure on my mom mm -hmm. to had to work two jobs sometimes to keep the lights on and the bills paid in our nice house in a nice neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And uh, their relationship sucked. Mm -hmm. My mom was constantly miserable, constantly stressed, and as much as she tried to hide it and always put a happy face on for us, which she did, mm -hmm. uh, I, you can tell when you're a kid that yeah. your mom's hurting. And rather than be a good kid and be like, hey, mom, I'm sorry you're hurting what can i do to help you i love you right i just uh started lashing out at other kids okay so i was a bully on the school bus as early as kindergarten and i started to get like stimulation from causing havoc at school wow okay uh it it became like an addiction and it, just like when you're addicted to heroin or mm -hmm. alcohol or cocaine or whatever like what gets you off the first time, mm -hmm. 10 times later doesn't anymore. Right. So you have to keep escalating it. Right. And as I grew older, my antisocial behavior kept escalating, and I went from being a bully on the school bus to fights in the schoolyard, to breaking and entering, vandalism. Started drinking when I was 14. Wow. Um, first time I drank, I drank till I passed out, and I drank like that for another 20 years. And then uh, by the time I'm 16, I'm like a full-blown alcoholic. Were you afraid the first time you passed out? I mean, did it freak you out? No, no, I, I, it was actually like, it was, I don't remember being scared, but looking back, it's, yeah. it's scary to, uh, think about like how comfortable yeah. being drunk out of control was. Yeah. It was just like a, a genetic thing for me. Okay. Um, and I, from that point forward for 20 years like right. I, my life literally revolved around the acquisition and drinking of alcohol do you think that was at all affected by your father being an alcoholic or yeah i alcoholism is a is a nature and nurture disease okay um it, it is genetic okay um i'm arno the fourth yeah <laughs> and all the arnos before me were yeah. you know raging drunks and yeah. and we're getting better by generation right <laughs> um arno the second my grandpa literally drank himself to death. Wow. I, I don't know enough about my great-grandpa, but um, my dad, uh, when he was in his like late 50s, he moved out to Oregon and uh, started an insurance agency. And he didn't quit altogether, but he just kind of dialed it down. Okay. So he, could, he got a lot more done, and um, he still drinks. He has some health problems now, and I, I think the drinking may have stepped up a little more lately. Mm. But... Um, He's, we're we're all alcoholics, but we're, we've all been very very functional alcoholics. Right. Um, <laughs> right. I I actually there's a thing I I've, I've kind of coined. It's like the Arno curse. Mm -hmm. 
where your hungover half-assed effort is like better than some people's best effort. Right. So that means you can easily like underachieve and just party your way through life. Right. Um, my dad's an insurance agent. He's a certified life underwriter. He's an accountant. He's a securities license. He, he does, he's incredibly smart mm -hmm. and he's really dedicated to the people he works with. And he's a, he's a great businessman, but, um, it's, it, it I, I don't know that he's achieved anywhere near his potential. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the same thing you say is my grandpa. And so I, I quit drinking when I was 34. Okay. Um, and that, that was a huge, huge turning point in my life. And, uh, it's interesting. There is no honor of the fifth, mm. but I, I have a daughter who, um, I think she was 18 when she said like, dad, I, I don't think I can drink responsibly. Oh, wow. And she's been, uh, you know, it's not easy, especially when you're 18 years old. Right. Like, that's a time when you should be partying and drinking right. like, according to society. And, and, uh, she, she kind of like sowed those wild oats okay. and is, is now at 26 like okay i'm i'm not gonna drink anymore oh wow just totally exactly not doing it yeah, yeah. i'm super proud of her yeah and um it speaks volumes for her character mm -hmm. but also like it, it, it's a hopeful thing to get this yeah. disease is genetic and with every generation um each generation is doing a little better than the one that's ahead good so that's that's huge yeah that's very promising so you sort of descended into a how would you call it a uh phase of rage that's yeah <laughs> absolutely so to speak uh and given that you just said that you know you grew up in a more or less loving environment loving family environment uh where do you think if you could trace it back or maybe it's it's not monocausal maybe it's multiple causes or right. multiple sources where do you think that sense of rage stemmed from or came from in the first place uh again i think it's it's definitely nature and nurture okay a, a lot of this is like my personality type okay <laughs> there, there's a lot of um there's a lot of people a lot of kids who have much harder childhoods than i had sure and they never go on to hurt people and hate people. Sure. Uh, and, and I never think there's an excuse for that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and when I, I was researching for my first book, I, I literally had to, like, find my friends from the skinhead days who had turned around and were still willing to talk to me mm -hmm. um, and sit down and, like, do hundreds of hours of interviews with them just to get like a clear picture of what right. happened because I was so drunk all the time. Oh, I see. And many of them had really, really difficult childhoods where okay. you're like, I'm not surprised this guy turned out this way. Right. For me, I, I think um, it was just kind of a perfect storm. And, and I, I really think a lot of it, and, and this is, uh, it's ironic because I, I do think affirmation is a important thing mm -hmm. for raising children. But I, I think because of all the affirmation I got mm -hmm. and because I was suffering, my response to it was, I'm not wonderful. Right. If, oh, that's interesting. If you don't believe how not wonderful I am, watch what I do to this kid. Oh, that's very interesting. Like, watch what I do to your school. Right. Watch what I do to your town. Right. Um, and so I, I really kind of started to define myself as like this anti-hero. So are you saying that the image that you saw of yourself was not the image that other people were using to describe you that'd be a perfect way to say it okay yeah i I, I think it I, I remember in sixth grade 
I, it occurred to me that the, the standardized test we took every year was like why I kept getting put in the gifted mm-hmm. genius classes. And I, I just wanted to be lazy. So, like, right. in sixth grade, I just tanked it. I played tic-tac-toe, and <laughs> like, purposely. Yeah. And um, apparently I wasn't a, a gifted genius enough to game it because the teacher's like, yeah, we know you tanked this, and you're oh. going to have to take it again. <laughs> oh, they, oh, they caught you. Wow. Right. I, I wasn't quite that much of a genius where right. I could tank it without them knowing. But, right. um, I, I mean, that kind of, like, summarizes. I, I didn't want to be this golden boy i see and and i i i think the the trauma my adverse childhood experiences um certainly has something to do with that mm-hmm. uh it, and it, it again it all kind of just fell into place that way i see okay so t- tell us about the process by because i was reading some of uh some one of your books actually on the way here uh the pdf form mm. uh and you started out, you, you didn't start out in the sort of neo-Nazi scene, like you, you know, in initially had friends from minority groups, and then you talked about how there was this incident where you were breakdancing, and then you got into a fight with a gang member, and then, or not a gang member, a fight with like the older people, the jocks or something, yeah, and yeah. then the, the people who were supposed to be a part of your crew didn't come to defend you, and then you're, and then you specified you're like oh those black guys didn't come over to defend me we're supposed to be in the and this sort of spiraled spiraled out so can you talk a little bit about that process from which you were first just sort of aggressive to transitioning into the the world of neo-nazi skinheads yeah i and again that that was that incident was like a stepping stone i I don't know that it was like okay now i hate black people right right right. um and, and it should be said like the whole setup to that is that in I think it was in late sixth grade, I started breakdancing. Okay. And I was like one of the first white kids to really be enamored with black yeah. culture. Yeah. Um, I I was I saw Run DMC and wow. Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five and like New Edition and I was super into it. Every Saturday I'd go to a, um, a roll arena, mm-hmm. like just kind of on the fringes of the ghetto yeah. with uh, one of my black friends and we'd break dance all night and battle. And, and I felt very like urban and yeah. I'm like, this is, all, I, I despised like the, the safety of my neighborhood. Okay. It was just so boring like, to unreal me. unreal to you? Like did it feel inauthentic? It, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, it didn't feel authentic. Yeah. It, and I, and I realized like it, just how privileged that, <laughs> that, that viewpoint is like, yeah. Oh, let's go to the ghetto yeah, where it's yeah. interesting and dangerous. <laughs> oh, like, and, and it's, I, I mean, I didn't really like think of it that way, Yeah. but I, I just, I, I really never felt more authentic than when I was right. at Starlight Roll Arena breakdancing, right. like battling. And yeah. listening to like jam on it or whatever, yeah. <laughs> and so I, I, and, and even and during that time, I was really like um, opposed to racism. Okay, I, yeah. I didn't really see any racism yeah. in society. Uh, I, you know, there weren't any like racist people I knew, but just the idea of it was really um, offensive. To me. Yeah. Uh, and so this, I went on as this break dancer kid and I, I got pretty good at it mm-hmm. and I, I like performed at the talent show with mm-hmm. my crew and, uh, I, I was, I was always like, everybody knew who I was. Sure. Half people loved me. Other people hated me. Sure. <laughs> like very few people had just a neutral opinion right. on me. 
And um, I started to get attention from girls, mm-hmm. and I was, you know, loving that, and I'm being this, like, cool breakdancing kid yeah. who's different than everybody else, yeah. and I think that was kind of part of the, the attraction. Sure. And um, all the jock kids, were, like, didn't take kindly to that. Right. And it, and it was it was weird because I, I always kind of spanned all the cliques in my school. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I was a jock. I played football. I wrestled. Right. I, and even when I was a little kid, like, I'd play football in the front yard with the, all the kids in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a nerd. Right. I, I was a <laughs> punk rocker. I was a break dancer. Right. I, 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 every little click there was, I had a, a toe in it. And uh, but this one day at recess, um, we're out in, it, it's just like a big blacktop parking lot. And suddenly, there, I just find myself surrounded by like 20, 30 of the jock kids, some of whom I, I had been really good friends with. Mm-hmm. And they jumped on me and they held me down. And I, back then, the cool thing for breakdancer kids was mm-hmm. you would have kind of a short little crew cut looking hair top, but haircut, but then in the back, you'd have this long little rat tail. Okay. And if you want to get really fresh, you'd like dip it in hydrogen peroxide. <laughs> and so <laughs> that, that's what I did. <laughs> And uh, these guys, like, held me down, and all of a sudden I, I realized they had a scissors. Yeah. And I'm, like, fighting for my life. I'm yeah. fighting for all I'm worth. But, it's, you know, there's, like, 20 guys. I, I can't stop them all. And they finally end up, like, cutting off my rat tail. And then they all disappear laughing, and they're running around with it like a trophy. Yeah. And I was just absolutely, like, felt violated. Yeah. Like, just, I, I was just destroyed and crying hysterically, and I, like, ran home. And um, at the moment, it didn't really, like, I didn't think, like, where were my guys? Yeah. But as I sort of just, like, digested and everything sink in, I'm like, where, where were my guys? Yeah. Like, I, I, I hung out with about a, a crew of about 10 people, mm-hmm. um, at, which included probably all the black kids in my grade. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, was this uh, a predominantly white school? Yeah, okay. yeah, very very white um a few black kids a few asian kids a couple latino kids mm-hmm. a, lot, a lot of jewish kids mm-hmm. but um predominantly white and, and i was just like where were my guys yeah like why didn't they have my back like why why didn't they help me yeah and i i, I at the moment i didn't think of it as a racial thing like okay. oh they didn't help me because they're black or whatever but i i definitely like, we acted like we were a gang. We wanted right. to be a gang, actually. Right. We would kind of, and I was like, well, that's some gang. When, like, right. I get jumped and y'all just, like, disappear. Please. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, it, that that was a stepping stone. Um, I think in, in the book Gift, it was uh, definitely, like, a plot device. Okay. But, um, it, it, you know, it took me a while to recover from that and uh, just, like, emotionally and socially. And, and as I did, I, I wasn't like, well, I'm done with breakdancing. But right. <laughs> it, I, it, it was the kind of thing where me always being in motion. Yeah. I'm just like, okay, now it's time for the motion to continue. And right. I'm going to go do something else. I'm right. going to go through some other phase. And uh, that, that kind of took me in t- up to 14 and that's why I started getting to punk rock, and mm-hmm. then the punk rock led to hearing the white power skinhead music. So there's a, is there a, I don't know if this is true for today, but you're saying back then there was an overlap sort of between uh, people who ran in the circles of punk rock and people who ran in the circles of the neo-Nazi scene. And that's how you sort of transition into that. So I'm just curious, who, like, 
what group did you meet first or what individual did you meet first like how was how how did that exchange go down when someone was like hey you want to join my white power <laughs> like how how did it right, happen right. <laughs> you know um i i always say in, in all my talks because i still love punk yeah and I, I listen to all kinds of stuff and um i think there's a lot of good things about the whole like punk rock idea not conforming questioning mm -hmm. authority mm -hmm. doing things yourself um so I always say I never want to make it sound like punk is some kind of gateway drug to becoming a white sure. power skinhead. Sure. <laughs> but if you talk to ten former white power skinheads, I would bet my vast fortune that seven or eight of them had come through the punk scene, if not sure. all of them. Sure. Um, so it, it was definitely like a, a channel mm -hmm. that uh, would be used to reach the your pissed off white kid demographic. Okay. <laughs> and, and part of part of being in punk is being pissed right like you're you're angry about everything it's, right that's just like part of the deal and um to me in in the 80s punk was just about like breaking shit okay like just smashing things and yeah. offending people and uh repulsing society and rebelling and, and it was it was definitely like i i i just wanted the pure rebellion i didn't okay. want it to be for some kind of cause okay and just for its own sake exactly okay and uh in the late 80s it, and interestingly now the the bulk of it and punk has changed so much I, I think it was like into its second or third wave by the time i was into it um but nowadays like most people you'd meet who would consider themselves some kind of punk rockers are typically like very far left activist type people okay. who are like you know we're gonna smash these corporations and the patriarchy and <laughs> right. yada 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 um, there was kind of early versions of that in the late eighties. We called them peace punks. Okay. <laughs> and Wait, is that like the band that you ended up joining? Cause I was very intri intrigued by the fact that this band that you, I believe ended up joining was initially like, no, 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 we don't drink alcohol. We don't. <laughs> oh, that, well, yeah, that was my, my first punk band I was in Yeah. was called Stolen Youth. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, a bunch of, like, r filthy, stinking rich kids from Mequon. Yeah. That's like a scene right out of uh, 8 Mile, by the way. <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> like, in reverse. But, yeah. Different, I, different genre of music, but, yeah. The, the guy whose house we practiced, we practiced in his, you know, big furnished basement, and his dad was, like, a banker or something. <laughs> and he had this gigantic big mansion. Yeah. And the whole uh, theme of Stolen Youth was... That when you go to college, like your youth is stolen, man. Like your youth is over. Don't let them steal your youth. And that yeah. was kind of like all the lyrics to the song. I didn't write any of those songs. Yeah, they were a band like before I joined them, and then their lead singer went to college. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, they're like, oh, we need a new lead singer because. So, yeah. so I'm like, I always hung out with them when I went to the practices, and they're like, oh, you know, you know all the songs, and like, you want to come to be our lead singer i'm like yeah totally and they're like okay well we're a straight edge band and you can't drink and i'm like well it is not gonna work and they're like okay well you you can't be drunk while you play how about that and i'm like no yeah. <laughs> they're like well how about if you just don't actively drink while you're on stage right. and i'm like all right yeah i could do that yeah. so that was the compromise and, and that was my first band gotcha um and and there it was just really like this stupid social statement they were trying to make and yeah. that was about the extent of their philosophy yeah um so it wasn't like they had an ideology left right or any you I know, see. otherwise 
Um, but that that really like got me comfortable being mm-hmm. on stage. And and we got I knew we were huge when uh, we were opening for some big punk band. And um, we get there, and there's a kid in the parking lot who had. Uh, replicated our logo on the trunk of his car oh, wow. <laughs> which our logo which i used to draw a lot our logo was like this fist yeah you know with a spiked wristband and then a big x on the fist for like being a straight edge and yeah. then i had stolen youth all stylized around it and this guy had like replicated it perfectly on the hood of his car and i'm like wow well, we're, we're huge <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah um but that that was uh I, I think the the next guy in line went to college. Oh wow! <laughs> that that band I mean, was done. Yeah, <laughs> that's like the entire. That's like the exact antithesis of everything the band stands exactly. supposedly st- stands for. No, it, it was it was awesome. Um, so it was just maybe a year later mm-hmm. that um, I'm starting to get really like fed up with peace punks. Okay. They just like irritated me beyond belief. Okay. And. Uh, it became like they became what I was rebelling against. Okay. So I remember at the time there was some accusations uh, of to Coors Brewery that they didn't hire black people or okay. something, some kind of unfair hiring practices. And all the peace punks were like, "Don't drink Coors, they're racist. Mm-hmm. Like we're boycotting Coors." And I didn't care one way or another who they hired or didn't hire, but yeah. I hated the peace punks. Right. So I would actually Transi- transition totally or transitory property of math. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Exactly. And, and so I, I I would spend the extra dollar or two to drink Coors beer, which was a big deal because right. I was all about quantity, not quality. Right. And I would do that just specifically to get at them. Okay. And I, I even had a Coors hat at one point. And so I it was outside of a punk show where I'm working on my second 12-pack of Coors, and I got my Coors hat on, and I'm just, like, poking at the peace punks when a friend of mine came and played a, a White Power Skinhead band. Mm-hmm. And then I'm just like, oh, yeah. oh, where has this been all my life? Yeah. And it just, like, made the hair on the back of my neck stand up, and I'm just, like completely enamored with the idea because first of all like the first thing going through my head is like this will really really enrage the peace punks sure like that was the biggest attraction to me and not just the peace punks but everybody right like all of civil society rebellion for its own sake totally yeah Yeah. all of civil society will be utterly disgusted right with with what i'm doing here and the, the second thing that did appeal to me was I throughout my entire life, I had this obsession with being a warrior. Mm-hmm. I, I when I was a little kid, um, I I used to I read at a very early age, and I'd go to the library and I'd take out books on Greek myths and mm-hmm. Norse myths, and I just wanted just want the ones about fighting and monsters. Mm-hmm. Like if there's no fighting in that myth, I'm not interested in it. Right. And I just like you know perseus and theseus and thor and beowulf i'm just like oh yeah and then i as i grow up i'm really into fantasy stuff i'm I'm reading a lot like conan and uh then i start playing D &D and i'm Mm -hmm. all into like dungeons and dragons i'm like i'm the warrior i'm saving you know whoever or a lot of times i'm like this anti-hero warrior and i'm Mm -hmm. just attacking people and sacking towns and whatever and so now here i am this alcoholic angry rebellion addicted 16 year old 
and this music presents me the opportunity to actually be a warrior right. for my race, which is apparently under threat right. from this Jewish conspiracy to kill all the white people on the planet Earth, and they're doing it by moving non-white people into our ancestral white homelands. Right. And as ridiculous as that sounds to any thinking human being, which it should, um, it, at that point in my life, it was like music to my ears. Right. And that's how I, I initially got into it. So did you join the the group that 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 your friend was in in the in the band? It actually uh, the we got the music from Chicago. Okay. So it was it was some friends of mine who were also in the punk scene that I knew for years from the punk scene and and who I I spent a lot of time with mm-hmm. and we'd go around causing trouble, get in fights, whatever. And um, one of them was in Chicago where she encountered the Chicago area skinheads, which mm-hmm. was like the first white power skinhead crew in the United States. And um, their leader was this guy, Clark Martell, who was best described as like Manson-esque. He was in Since. his early 30s. He was very, very smart, very mm-hmm. charismatic, but absolutely like crazy. Yeah. Uh, he'd stab you as soon as look at you. And, and he had always, like, trying to creep on, like, girls and get oh. them into the group. And he's all, you know, making passes at them. Um, and so my friend went down there being a girl. Like, they, he just, like, dialed into her. And they yeah. met her on the street, probably on Belmont or something. And that's where she got a screwdriver tape. Okay. And so that was the first white – and that was kind of the seminal white power skinhead band there, there is. And so she came back to Milwaukee with that tape – uh, played it for uh, her then boyfriend, now husband, Pat, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, played it for me mm-hmm. and another guy, uh, Clayton, and we were all just like, oh, all of us were like super into this. Yeah. And that's when we decided to start our own white power skinhead crew in Milwaukee. Okay, I see. So we didn't like join an existing crew, really. Um, we were kind of exposed to the ideology by the Chicago group. But uh, <clears throat> shortly after we got started making noise in Milwaukee, like some remnants of the, because the, the leader of the Chicago group went to prison. Mm-hmm. Um, it was actually state's evidence turned on him by the woman who would later bear my child. Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, so the remnants of the Chicago group like came up to Milwaukee, like they're going to come and command us. Oh. They're like, oh yeah, like they're, well, yeah, well this is how it is. And we, we kind of ran them out of town. I see. We're like, no, you're not commanding us and nobody else is. And right. that, that was kind of always our thing. Like I we see. were, we were hyper violent. We were <clears throat> very arrogant. Mm-hmm. And if anybody, like when we started like getting in the newspapers and for beating up people and spray painting squashes all over the place, all these like old school Nazis would come crawling out from under their rocks. And mm-hmm. some of them like tried to walk in and just like command us, like mm-hmm. were their foot soldiers or something. Yeah. And they got beat up like yeah. badly. Like that that was just how we were. We, we weren't there for anybody to run. Like we were running stuff. Right. So tell me about some of the the violent acts you guys did during your run <clears throat> with this group. Um, it, especially in the the first few years, it was just like rampant violence mm-hmm. that constantly. There there were some weeks looking back where I, I like lost count on how many fights I got into, wow. <clears throat> and some of those fights were just me. I was always a big kid, and I always kind of looked older than mm-hmm. my age. So even when I was, like, 16, 17, there were some bars I could go drink in. Mm-hmm. 
And I'd go in these bars and I'd start drinking and I'd pick fights with whoever's in the bar. Yeah. Like, a lot of times I got my ass kicked and a lot of times I beat people up. Um, but a lot of the violence was also like we would just go around in the streets like looking for targets of opportunity. Mm-hmm. And the targets of opportunity may have been like a black kid standing by himself mm-hmm. or somebody we thought was gay or Jewish or um, most often we would jump on like white frat boys mm-hmm. and just beat the snot out of them and then afterwards we would like justify it by saying oh they were listening to public enemy oh well like they were a race traitor and and we would have never ever admitted this back in the day but milwaukee has one of the the most violent inner cities in the united states Mm -hmm. a lot of people don't know that they don't you think you know detroit or baltimore or something Mm -hmm. but milwaukee is is just incredibly depressed inner city and just crushing poverty and Mm -hmm. and segregation. And we were terrified of the inner city, even though we lived on the fringes of it. Okay. We, we, we were like on this strip of neighborhood between the posh east side of Milwaukee and the inner city north side. Mm -hmm. And this strip was called river West. If we went east, we're going to the east side to fight the frat boys. Okay. If we go west, we're going, like, right into the hood. Right. And we never went west. Right. Because we were terrified. Right, right. We, we, we would have never admitted that. Yeah. But when we were looking for trouble, we always went east. Sure. Did you ever have any aha moments or any any <clears throat> sort of, not aha moments, but introspective moments when you were engaging in the, in the physical acts of violence? Did you ever like pause or hesitate or, or think about what you were doing? The, there were, there's a lot of fights I got into, which was kind of like live by the sword kind of stuff. Okay. Um, as I wrote about in my first book, like we're, we're crashing some party and some hippie kid hits me in the head with a lead pipe. Right. And I, I just destroyed him. Right. Like it, I, it, I absolutely just lost it. And, and, I feel bad about that, but like it doesn't really haunt me. Sure. Like I, I, if you hit me with a lead pipe nowadays, I'm probably still going to defend myself. Sure. I'm not going to go to the extreme that I did then. Right. But um, that I, I don't lose a whole lot of sleep over. What I do lose sleep over is a lot of the just random beatings we were involved with, mm-hmm. where like ten of us would jump on one kid, and <clears throat> there was. <clears throat> moments during that kind of violence where the human being inside of me was like, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. Like, why are you doing this? And I didn't have the courage to even acknowledge that voice, okay. much less answer it. Okay. And, uh, when people ask me why I left, the, the simple answer is exhaustion. Okay. And the exhaustion came from all kinds of angles, but one of the big sources of exhaustion was knowing that what I was doing was wrong mm-hmm. and it was horrible. And um, a lot of that, like, drawing on my childhood and, and being friends with all the black kids in Mequon and being mm-hmm. having a, a best friend who was Jewish mm-hmm. and hanging out with the Filipino kid and, like, just going back to that and, and that same voice would be like, are you... You, you don't why do you have a problem with black people like right. black people are doing to you yeah. like this is this is all manufactured all yeah. this this hatred and separation is is all like concocted yeah um but i i it, it speaks for my lack of character at the time that i i didn't uh do anything about it can you unpack that a little bit more though the idea of exhaustion because you said well, f- some of it came from <clears throat> you know just 
physical acts of violence, but where what were some other sources of the exhaustion that you experienced? Uh, it, the exhaustion came from all sorts of angles. Um, the, the knowledge of my wrongness and the violence was one of them. Uh, I, I think addiction just simply is another one. Mm-hmm. Like just this whole, and it, and it sounds like kind of innocuous. Just be, yes, I was addicted to beer. Yeah, <laughs> but that's what it was. I, yeah. I I was like physically addicted to it, and and just constantly like having to find it and drink it, and then find the rest of them and try to function when you're all hungover, and and that was all very much tied into the culture of being a, a neo-Nazi skinhead. Mm-hmm. And we we'd even like justify it, be like, well, you know, drugs are for non-whites. <laughs> But but alcohol's like the white man's like yeah. we invented beer, not true at yeah. all. But like yeah, beer is something the white man invented. Uh, liquor, the white man invented, not true yeah. whatsoever. <laughs> but um, it, it was just one of the the many like lies we would tell ourselves, and those lies also became a source of exhaustion as well, right, right. because you're trying to adopt this fundamentalist ideology that says white people are superior and at war with everyone. And as you go through your day-to-day life, like you constantly barrage with all this information that doesn't jibe with that. Right. So you're constantly blocking that information out. Right. It's like you this active process, like a little kid sitting there with thumbs in their ears going, nah, 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 nah. <laughs> I don't hear yeah. you. <laughs> um, it's, that's exhausting. Uh, I, I really found it exhausting to have to cut myself off from culture that mm-hmm. I had once loved. I grew up and I remain a huge like film, TV, music, even sports nerd. Okay. Um, I lived in Wisconsin. I love the Green Bay Packers. Right. Can't watch a Packer game on Sunday. Why? Because they're black guys and white guys on the uh, same team, and it's not very white goes, power goes friendly. Deep. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. It, it, yeah. And it, not only that, but it's it's like not only can you not watch it and enjoy it and of course it's not just the the um integrated team it's this whole thing about well the jews own nfl and they own tv and it's all part of this jewish plot to like zombie out white men so that they don't uh it's it's very interesting these narratives come right in line with uh like far left narratives yeah. today like oh this is all just stuff to pacify the people so right. that we don't rise up and smash our oppressors right 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 yeah but, it's very eerily but but it, 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 the people was the white man right the people was the white race right um that was why football was frowned upon as was all tv as was anything out of hollywood i see um we used to say like oh if you look at the credits of a movie or a tv show it reads like a tel aviv phone book <laughs> And, and be like, well, see, look at all these Jews in there. Look at all right. the Jews. And being, like, willfully ignorant that for thousands of years, Jewish people have been barred from yeah. your normal trades. Yeah. Like, you can't be a carpenter. You can't be a plumber. Right. You can't be um, uh, any of these trades. You can't work in construction. So, of course, they're going to work in whatever area they can work in. Right. And a lot of that happened to be Hollywood. A lot of it happened to be banking. Right. Um, even though all the, the, the huge big banks were founded by wasps. Right. Um, see, it, it, that's, that's another part of the exhaustion is right. like you, you're, you're constantly spinning not only what you. Was there, was there, uh, sources of information though that were coming in as you were being fed this, this sort of bigoted, uh, these bigoted talking points? Were there other 
sort of talking points ca- countering that that you kept hearing and sh- and sort of kept trying to shut out? Well, yeah, and, and it would come from pop culture stuff. Okay. Uh, one of my favorite examples, and I I literally like this is a really important part of my life. The show Seinfeld to help save my life. Wow. <laughs> I, I was uh, when Seinfeld came out. I was like in the actually tail end of my my hate group stuff. I think it was 91, 92. I got out in 94. But I was living with my girlfriend who was also a skinhead and uh, she worked nights. Mm -hmm. And Seinfeld was on 8 p.m. on Channel 4 Thursday nights. And I had to tape it for her because she loved it also. And if she got home and it wasn't taped, she'd be really (laughs) angry with me. And we couldn't very well write Seinfeld on the spine of the tape. Right. Because if that was seen on our bookshelf by my guys, like that would be used against me. Right. What would you guys write on it? We we wrote uh, Amber's second birthday party because we knew no one would ask to watch that. (laughs) So that's like where we hit our Seinfeld episodes. Wow. And, yeah. and as ridiculous as that was, it, which was none of which was lost on me. Right. I mean, it's almost like Seinfeldian in itself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it could be an episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, the the nature of the show, mm-hmm. uh, which is like quintessential Jewish humor. Yeah. Larry David, Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah. Like and then Julia Louis Dreyfus, Jason Alexander, like yeah. all these Jewish people involved in the show. Um because it was like observational and kind of day-to-day life, me, like everybody else during that time, was we'd wa- I'd watch Seinfeld Thursday night, and then the next Tuesday, yeah. um, I'd be eating soup, and then I'm thinking of the soup Nazi. Like, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> like, you know, all this, little, somebody gets too close to you when they're talking. Oh, a close talker. Ha, ha, right. Like, yeah, all these little references come up every single day. Yeah. And every time they did... Slowly but surely start infiltrating. Exactly. It was. It was it, and it's funny because this is exactly what the, the white power ideology accuses mm-hmm. Jews of doing. And mm-hmm. so, yes, indeed, Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David did, like, pollute my mind with this <laughs> Jewish humor and blah, blah, blah. But what it brought up was really poignant, painful questions I would ask myself. Okay. Which was, so here I am spending seven years being this rabid, violent anti-Semite, saying everything wrong with the world is because of Jews, and they have to go. And we would always dance around the Holocaust. First, we'd deny the Holocaust, and then when people say, oh, do you want to exterminate all Jews? They're like, well, you know, we're not going to exterminate them, but once the white man stops supporting them, they will wither like grapes on the vine. Mm. Uh, We would say that about non-white people as well. And so I would ask myself, uh, I'm like, oh, so in your whiter and brighter world, does Jerry Seinfeld get to live there? Right. And if he did, do you think he'd be very funny? Yeah. After you're letting all these other Jews wither on the vine, you know, maybe with a little push and shove here and there? Right. And th- that was a really hard question to answer. And, and I, I couldn't answer it with anything but um, actually my life is a more joyful process because of Jerry Seinfeld right. and Larry David. <laughs> right. Like that's period right that's just that's the answer to that question so what 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 implications does that have on the broader question of my anti-semitism right um it's cognitive dissonance totally totally so that was exhausting uh but what was most exhausting and and really what a lot of my work focuses on nowadays is when people who i claim to hate treated me with kindness Mm. 
Um, which is one of the reasons why your your New York Times piece just resonated with me so yeah. much because it, it was like that kind of bravery that you talk about and that your parents kind of instilled in you definitely yeah was like what changed the course of my life. It was people like a Jewish boss, a lesbian supervisor, black and Latino coworkers, people who it, it, the whole thing about being a skinhead is that you're like radiating the hatred right you don't go walking around like dress normal acting like you're undercover all right. week and then on saturday you put your clan hood on right like when you're a skinhead all day every day you're walking around going i hate you right i hate blacks i hate jews i hate gay people like that's you you might sometimes you do have that written on your head yeah. uh, i had a shaved head i had swastika tattoos on me i had swastikas on my jacket it, it you didn't have to be very sharp to put two and two together and understand who I was. Right. And yet there were these very brave people who defied what I was trying to do. Right. And I, and I, I really like dial in on this nowadays in all my talks and in all anything I do on media, because everybody like wants to fight. Yeah. Everybody's like, well, I'm going to punch Nazis. You know, we're going to smash the oppressors. We're going to yeah. do this, this and that. And I'm like, that's not helping. Yeah. Like that, that is when you, when you reflect the aggression right. of violent racists, you're literally putty in their hands. Right. Like that's exactly what they're trying to provoke. Um, with, without jumping too much, but just because this happened a few days ago, sure. the, this Christchurch shooter who murdered 50 people thinks that it, and in his manifesto, he goes on and on about how he's, he's fighting back against ISIS. Right. He's fighting against the, against this Islamic terror, and it's like he, he's not fighting. He might as well be one of them. Right. He's he is he is absolutely aiding and abetting them. Right. He he is doing exactly what they're trying to provoke. Right. So th this idea that like you can somehow out hate Nazis. Right. Um. Is it's just it and and I get it. Like I I I can imagine what it's like to be the target of that hatred. Yeah. And, and it's the the phrase uh, the hate that hate made comes to mind. Right. Um, I get that, but the, the the fact is, is beyond just like the kumbaya, we're all human beings, let's love each other, which I think has a lot of uh, importance, sure. and I think we need to really get more dialed into that than getting re reverting into tribalism. But beyond that, the reflection of aggression is is tactically wrong. Right. Like you're not going to accomplish anything good doing that. Right. And so when when people treated me with kindness when I at least deserved it, they were defying me. Right. They, it's in, a different kind of attack. Exactly. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, it's it is absolutely warriorship. Yeah. Because it's it's very hard to do. Yeah. Is there a specific story that you have that you could tell us? Yeah, I, uh, I got a ton of them. Um, probably the the most popular story in this uh, genre is <laughs> the the uh, sweet old black lady who worked at McDonald's story. Okay. And uh, this happened when I was very early on in my seven year involvement in hate groups. And I, because I'm a gifted genius, it occurred to me that if I ate nothing but ramen noodles, I'd have more drinking money. <laughs> and I don't mean like the good like twenty dollar bowl. Be like, I could save money. <laughs> you know, I, could, I could save up for something. It, well, it wasn't save money, but, but it was for, for drinking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it wasn't like the good like twenty dollar bowl of really legit ramen that sure. you get here in New York City. It, it was like the ten for a dollar bricks. Sure. <laughs> And um, just, like, something that does nothing more than fill your stomach. Right. And the one day of the week where I would have something else was on payday when I would go to McDonald's and get a Big Mac. Mm -hmm. And I went to this McDonald's by the place where I cashed my check. And when I walked in there, I was just kind of stunned 
by this elderly black woman who was behind the counter taking orders. And I was stunned because she had this beautiful smile on her face that was like so genuine and authentic. And it was just there for everyone. It was like the sun. Like the sun doesn't care what color your skin is. You're a gangbanger, white power skinhead, rich, poor, gay, straight. The sun just shines in everybody. And that's how her smile was. And it made me really uncomfortable. (laughs) Because I'm trying to hate black people. And here's this sweet elderly woman with this smile. Like, how could anybody hate her? Yeah. And I I couldn't. Yeah. I I was was powerless to hate her. And so I I wanted my Big Mac. So I go in there and I order. And she's super nice and really, like, making my skin crawl the whole time. (laughs) And so I, I scurry out of there. A week goes by. I'm drinking fighting eating ramen noodles yelling white power printing t-shirts it was my job and then payday comes again i go back to the same mcdonald's there she is again Mm -hmm. this time she remembers me Mm -hmm. she remembers what i ordered she remembers i drank diet coke Mm -hmm. she's talking about the weather she's asking me about my day and i'm just like completely just stammering like um yeah okay fine and i get my food and like just get out of there yeah because i'm very busily diligently trying to like create this identity of who I am as right. a white warrior right. who fights for his people and right. hates black people. <laughs> like here's this little yeah. old lady like blowing it all out of the water. Yeah. A week goes by again in between paydays this time. Again, another example of gifted genius. I get a swastika tattooed on my middle finger, oh. <laughs> which is, is since there? it's since been covered up and then removed. Oh, okay. Yeah. But, um, the logic was, was that if somebody got in my face as I'm trying to provoke constantly, I would show them the middle finger right. and be like, what are you going to do? Right. Like, let's brawl. And I certainly was not thinking of the sweet old black lady who worked at McDonald's when I got the tattoo. Sure. And it didn't occur to me until I'm walking in for my payday Big Mac that I see her again and I freeze in the doorway, like right. involuntarily. And I right. put my hand in my pocket and I'm like, I don't want her to see this. Well, yeah. And I, I'm not even like going into that, but I'm just, I'm trying to escape. Yeah. I'm like... First of all, I'm like, does anybody else work here? Like, right. she, she's always here. And I'm trying to, like, right. wait to see if somebody else comes to the counter. They don't. And then I'm trying to think, like, where's the next closest McDonald's? Right. Like, I'm getting ready to, like, walk because I'm, I'm so I, – I, the idea of her seeing that tattoo was just absolutely, like, crushing to me. Yeah. It's almost and, as if you knew that if she if – she, well, you can tell me if this is true or not, but it sounds like it's almost as if you knew that if she saw that and was disappointed in you – yeah. That would have had an effect oh, yeah. on, the, on your feeling about yourself. Right. right. Which is real cognitive dissonance. Oh, it totally right? was. That it black totally woman. Was. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I felt like um I, I felt like I did when I my grandma would yell at me. Right. Like when, for beating up my little brother, which I did all the time. Yeah. And, I, and I love my grandma. Yeah. I, my world is revolved around her. But she'd be like and she was real gentle, but she's like, What are you doing? Why are you doing that to your yeah. brother? And I'm I felt like this big when she asked me. And so I, I the, there weren't any McDonald's close, and it was December, and it was cold out, and I'm eventually the siren song of the Big Mac prevails, and I go <laughs> walking up to the counter, and I order, and she's super nice again, and I'm thinking, if I just keep my hand in my pocket, she won't see it. Mm-hmm. Not thinking I have to get my money out. Right. <laughs> so I, I'm right. trying to get my money out without showing the top yeah. of my hand, and this real like contorted spin trying to do that, and as yeah. I take my money out, she sees it, and she just goes, what is that on your finger? Hmm. And I, I just froze, and I just, all I could do was look down at my steel-toed boots, and yeah. I was, like, already 6'3 by then. I was a good yeah. foot taller than her. Yeah. And Wow, and she's still, like... Oh, yeah. <laughs> she, I, I was just at her mercy, and, yeah. I, and I'm just, like, 
I'm, I can't even look at her. I'm just looking down at my boots and I go, it's nothing. <laughs> yeah. and she waits for me to look out, look up, and when I do, she looks me right in the eye and she just goes, I know that's not who you are. Mm. You're a better person than that. Mm. You know what this reminds me of? I have to say. Okay. I have yes. to say this because this is the Theory of Enchantment podcast. Yeah, and yeah. And the second principle of the Theory of Enchantment is criticize to uplift and empower, mm. never to tear down and never to destroy. Yes. Uh, and one of the things that I teach when I teach the Theory of Enchantment is the story of Maya Angelou and Tupac because there was a, there's a story goes where Tupac was on set about to fight someone and, you know, obviously Maya Angelou was not approving of this so she pulls him over to the side and essentially says to him the same thing that that woman said to you which is essentially like i know this isn't you and also you are the future like we are looking to you my generation is looking to you to pave a new path so it's like amazing to me how the parallels that exist and the patterns that exist in terms of people uh being transformed from one sort of lifestyle to a different lifestyle wow yeah, it, it it is enchantment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, like such a powerful thing. Yeah, and and so like strong. It's so strong. People don't realize that how strong the strength that is required right. to to do something like that or to say something like that. Right. And how did you respond when she told you that? I I, I couldn't even say anything. I yeah. just like grabbed my food and I I ran out of that McDonald's. Yeah. Like I I was, I was so discombobulated by that. And, yeah. I, and I always, I, I would always say I would love to say I went like skipping out of there, right. going, racism, stupid. Right. Like, she was so nice. I'm all changed. Right. But the a really important part of what I teach, and I'm interested to to know if this like is part of your theory of entrapment also, mm-hmm. is just the the truth of cultivation. Mm. In that uh, this exchange I had with this woman which took all of like 45 seconds maybe. Sure. Um, it At the time, it made me run away from her for one. Right. And I ran home and I got as drunk as I could, as fast as I could. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went on the streets and picked a fight with the first person I could find. Mm-hmm. I blasted my white power music. I'm just like, I need to put as much space emotionally, mentally, spiritually as I can between me and the singularity of inhumanity that I just encountered. Sure. Trying to pretend it never happened. Sure. But the human psyche does not work in terms of subtraction. Right. <laughs> like, if if it did, there'd be no need for therapists. Right. Like, <laughs> the, the whole... That's a very good point. Yes. The nature of our, our being is that once something happens to us, it is part of our experience from that day forward. Right. And the only thing we can change is how we look at it. Right. How we process it. We can change the meaning of something, but we can't change the, the experience of it itself. Right. And so... For seven years, in addition to all the other exhaustion, I'm constantly trying to suppress the memory of what this woman said to me. And and it became, as all the exhaustion piled up, right. it be, that seed, like, started to grow. Wait, this is crazy. Okay, I have to bring up another thing now yeah, that you're yeah. saying this. Because I'm realizing that there's a parallel between this story and another story that I teach, which is fictional, but still very much related um, because so it's it comes from a Disney movie, comes from the movie Moana. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, probably watched it with my daughter when she was a kid, but okay. I don't recall it. So it it came out recently. It came out like two years ago. Oh. Um, then I didn't. Okay, so so it's interesting because you just said that 
this almost as if the seed that she planted in you gnawed at you for seven years. That's a long time. It is. That's a long time to 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 gnaw at right. someone. Right. Um, but that specific statement that she made. What was the statement again? Say it again that she said to you. She said, "I know that's not who you are. You're a better person." I that. know that's not who you are. So let's let's focus on. That. So in Moana. <laughs> You should still watch it. It's amazing. I will. I will. The parallels. Uh, This is a spoiler alert, but you should still (laughs) watch it. Okay. Um, Moana is all about this young woman who has to go defeat an evil goddess named Taka, who's full of rage Ah. and full of, like, um, you know, anger. Right. And she has to bring back another goddess who um, left. Her name is Tefiti, and she's, like, the green goddess and the, the restorative, you know, goddess of gardening or whatever um to restore the island essentially okay and uh she it's interesting because in your story it took seven years more or less but in the disney it's a disney movie so it's not gonna take seven (laughs) years it's gonna gonna take a scene right right, essentially but she real she has an aha moment and she realizes moana realizes that taka and tafiti are the same goddesses Mm. and the the heart sort of was removed from her and so she descended into this mad, mad descent of rage. But what's interesting is that in the scene where she has this aha moment, she says literally, word for word, this is not who you are. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? That's insane. This is enchantment. Okay, continue. That, that, That's insane, though. That is certainly enchantment. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, and, and what a powerful thing to like yeah. to even contemplate mm-hmm. and and to, to present present to somebody yes like rather than you know you're wrong right rah, 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 like butting heads about like a policy issue right just like really ask even to ask like yeah. is that really who you are yeah um it's it, it is seven years yeah it's it, a it long was time. it was seven years later that i'm looking for an excuse to leave mm-hmm. because all this exhaustion is piled up and piled up and it's all like interdependent also mm-hmm. um after i had this experience at mcdonald's like the next time i'm attacking someone arbitrarily like that's in my head right her asking Constantly. her saying that yeah um and it and it, it kind of carries more and more weight each time right and the more i try to suppress it the more weight it carries right uh so after seven years i'm looking for an excuse to leave the reason I need an excuse to leave is because in the movement, as we called it, I was a big deal. Mm-hmm. I was like, I was a lead singer of Centurion. I was one of the first Hammerskins. I was a, a reverend in this racial holy war. Mm-hmm. Like, I had status. <laughs> very, very Nation of Islam esque. <laughs> <laughs> it's very interesting. We, we were actually big fans of the Nation of Islam. Mm-hmm. We were like, oh, Oh, they're black guys who hate white people and Jews? Like, that's awesome. Yeah. Like, more of that. Yeah. Please. Um, I remember a buddy of mine lived, uh, <clears throat> we always lived on kind of the fringes of the hood because mm-hmm. it was all we could afford and mm-hmm. we were too afraid to really go into the hood. But um, a buddy of mine lived, like, kind of on the fringes and all the time, like, on the way to his house, 
there were Nation of Islam guys at the intersection selling uh, their, the newspaper mm-hmm. that they had. And I would always stop and I'd be like, hell yeah, here, I'd buy one from them. I'm like, yeah, hey, hey, keep doing what you're doing. And then he'd kind of look That's at me. That's wild. And, <laughs> he'd look at me and he'd be like, yeah, okay. And, uh, and, he, and you know, we, we kind of had this moment of like, yeah, we're on the same page about yeah. a lot of stuff, aren't we? Um, it, 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 there's all kinds of parallels there. And, mm-hmm. and it reminds me too, I, I work in counter-violent extremism nowadays. And so I, I address violent extremism of all sorts. Mm-hmm. And whether you're talking far right, far left, which is certainly a thing, despite mm-hmm. a lot of people saying the contrary or religious mm-hmm. or racial, like it's all the same narrative. Yeah, It's the same patterns. It is. It, absolutely. I've noticed that across these different categories, it's the same patterns. Yep which are sort of rooted in the human condition, I think. So you needed an excuse to get out because you were super popular. Right. And so how did you get out? <laughs> well, it, it, it was basically a look in my life in the movement, mm-hmm. VIP, international skinhead, war god, rock star. Mm-hmm. Outside of the movement, I'm an alcoholic high school dropout mm. who works a menial factory job. I see. Um, so the movement gets Can't you pay meaning. his bills. And has a habit of drinking until he passes out and pissing all over himself. Right. Like, that's who I am in real right. life. And the idea of, like, giving up all this status and, like, really facing the harsh reality of the holes I've dug for myself, mm-hmm. it was pretty imposing. Sure. So that's kind of what put me in a position where, like, I, I can't just go. Like, right. I, I need something to happen. And what happened was, was when my daughter was 18 months old, her mother and I broke up. Mm-hmm. I became a single parent. Her mother moved away to live by her previous two daughters and their dad, who was down in Key West. Mm-hmm. And a couple months later, a second friend of mine was murdered in a street fight that happened after a show that my band played on. Mm. So by that time, I had lost count of how many friends had been incarcerated. And it hit me that if I didn't change my ways, death or prison was going to take me from my daughter. So that was like... That was me walking away from that life and and walking away from that ideology. And right away, there was good things and bad things right away. But for the most part, it was almost like a a hedonistic thing. Okay. Leaving. I'm like, I can watch Seinfeld. Right. (laughs) I can root for the Packers. Like, go pack. Yeah, I can go put a cheese head on. Like, I can go watch movies. Right. Um, I can listen to the Beastie Boys again. Right. Uh, and, and while I, I kind of like traded all my friends for that, mm-hmm. um, it, it was it was also pretty apparent to me by that point that a lot of them weren't really friends. Mm. Like a lot of them were more messed up than I was. Okay. And that it was only this hatred that was holding us together. Mm. And it... it Party and I do a lot of like corporate stuff nowadays, and mm-hmm. and the big thing for corporations, which I think is great, is like let's have a purpose driven organization. Sure. Like, are we just gonna make widgets, or are we gonna be like making the world a better place while we make and sell our widgets? Sure. And in order to do that, you you really adopt a corporate culture that leads you in that direction. Right. So like we want our corporate culture to be compassion and kindness right. and gratitude, which which can be really transformative for a business. It. it supercharges customer service it makes people happy to come to work they get along better our corporate culture 
this white power hate group was literally hate and violence. Right. So they like our our organization reflected that. Yeah. And we were fighting each other as often as we were fighting anybody else. Now there were a number of guys I knew from back then who like I saved their lives mm-hmm. in street fights and they saved my life. Mm-hmm. And and we were very close. But we were also dysfunctional personally that we couldn't really have a, a, that much a, that an authentic friendship when you got all that other stuff swimming around. Sure. So it, it leaving the friends like wasn't as bad as you may have thought, and I, they were all getting burnt out too. Mm. Um, our our group itself had like cannibalized itself and self destructed so much by '94 that it was really just like me and the guys in my band and maybe five, six other guys that I knew from way back in the day who all still hung out. And, like, when we had our peak of 150 people, they were all out doing things that, like, made our stomach turn. Mm. And and also that made us worry, like, these guys are idiots. They're all going to get busted. They know all the dumb shit we did. And now, you know, they're going to go turn state on us. And so we just started, like, by the time I left, we had already distanced ourselves from the bulk of the people in the movement locally. Um, and then after I left, I, I had one friend who kind of like dipped his toes in the skinhead thing and then got out real quick. Okay. Interestingly, <laughs> when I interviewed him for the first book, I was like, dude, why? I didn't really got the story when he left. I'm like, what, what made you leave? And he's like, dude, you ever try to get laid as like a white power skinhead? <laughs> you like walk up to a bunch of girls and be like, hey, so yeah, you know, white power. <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> just like yeah. that, it, it was interfering with his ability to like right. connect with women. Yeah, <laughs> I, I kind of, I'm like, yeah, that's kind of true. Actually, yeah. <laughs> it's not really a... missed that part, <laughs> overlooked that part. Yeah. Right. Um. So it, it, he had been out for a, a while already by the time I got out, and he was like my only friend. Mm. And I he lived on on the college campus in Milwaukee with a bunch of like hippie college kids. And I'd go over there, and I'm just like, wow, you know, like, everybody's sitting around, like, partying, but nobody's, like, hating each other. Like, it's <laughs> not about... Idea. Yeah, it was, like, really amazing to me. Yeah. And I wanted to be over there all the time, to the point where the guy's like, no, you can't come over that often. Yeah. Like, just <laughs> go find something else to do. And then yeah. um, my friends started going to uh, rave parties in Chicago. And... He, on Saturdays. So mm-hmm. when I want to hang out on Saturdays, like, oh, he's like, I'm going to Chicago. You should come. And I'm like, oh, no, no. I, um, I was scared to death. Yeah. Oh, and, I remember this part. In yeah, book. yeah. yeah. And I, I write about it in depth in the first book. And yeah. th- that was one of my favorite chapters to write. Yeah. And it's one of my favorite ones to read also. But um, eventually I kind of caved in and I went down to the south side of Chicago with him and found ourselves in this, like, dilapidated old roller rink with, like, 3,000 people of every possible ethnicity and sexual identity, gender identity, socioeconomic background, you can imagine shaking our ass to house music all night long till like six in the morning. (laughs) And it was one of the most amazing things I've ever experienced in my life. That really resonates with me because I like love that scene here in New York. And I also frequent those sort of, uh, uh, places in New York, especially in Brooklyn. Right um, and I, you know, I'm not from here. I'm from New Orleans. I moved here almost four years ago. But okay. my sort of immersion into that scene has been, for me personally, like a life-changing experience. And it's like very religious, almost, oh, and like totally transcendental in some ways. And it really affected how I sort of assess. I mean, that scene has informed 
my development of the theory of enchantment, my sort of understanding of human relationships and the breaking down of human relationships because Whoa. there's a question that I always used to ask was like, what is the, this was the question that really was the catalyst for developing the theory of enchantment. What is the psychology of connection here that's going mm. on here? Because like it's a, it's a DJ, these people probably in the crowd, many of them don't know each other and yet they are willing to forego a lot of the usual you know, don't stand so close to me, <laughs> right, you know, right. to just lose themselves in rapture to this music. And what is this psychology of connection that's happening? And can I take the psychology of connection and apply it in a space where there's disconnection? Wow. So can I take it off the dance floor, whatever's going on, figure <laughs> right, out what's going right. on there, and synthesize it into whether it's principles, whether it's practiced habits over time wow. to generate connection. Wow. So I definitely relate to that t particular chapter that you wrote and I remember it cuz cuz I had a similar experience as well. That's I, I it's that's like mind-blowing yeah. absolutely. <laughs> I, I, but but not surprising. Yeah. Because I I it, w one of the things I experienced in the rave scene was like I still had swastikas all over me back then. So fascinating. So and people I, and people were just like dancing. I I <laughs> I'll never forget. I one time I'm sitting on the floor of some filthy warehouse. It's mm -hmm. like four in the morning, and this girl has my forearm in her lap. Mm -hmm. Which, as you're looking at it now, it's like this demon guy tattoo. But sure. underneath that, there is a pile of skulls and swastikas. You can wow. kind of see the diagonal lines and the skulls. <clears throat> and she's looking at this tattoo of skulls and swastikas. It says "White Power." There's a bust of an SS guy there. And she's kind of run her hand over it, and she's like, what's that about? <laughs> and I'm like, well, I, I used to be a Nazi skinhead. I feel really bad about it. Yeah. And she's like, well, you're not anymore, are you? And I'm like, no. And she's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, just like back yeah. to the beat. Like, that's, yeah. that's amazing. all it was. It's the power of music. Oh, it totally was. <laughs> and and the, it, everywhere I went, the people in the rave scene, like, forgave me and accepted me yeah. and embraced me, like, on the spot. Yeah. With, with absolutely that's a very self-selecting community oh it totally is <laughs> it very, totally is i have been in spaces where i i, I am like floored by that immediate <laughs> impulse right right that is a part of that scene well and in chicago too like it, that was when they'd still had a lot of outlaws okay <laughs> so like in places where like they were we were supposed to be there all night and yeah. and the the promoter so there's no bar there's no drinks uh -huh. and like any good promoter would have like a huge barrel full of water bottles or yeah. something just like so everybody's keep hydrated yeah. or whatever and it was <laughs> probably wasn't very uh sanitary but <laughs> i remember like you'd be just like dancing going nuts and you're dying of thirst and somebody'd be like here bro and just like give you a bottle of water and you're like yeah. oh thanks and then you give it back to them and then they're drinking it like everybody's just drinking out of the same bottle of water and just like, this is like this was your uh this is your Burning Man light experience. <laughs> it totally <laughs> was. And, and this was, I, I gotta say too, this, I've, I'm not a burner. I've never been. Yeah. Um, I, it is kind of a bucket list thing. Yeah. At the same time, I do kind of got like the elitist, like, yeah, back in my day, like <laughs> our four day techno festivals were 20 bucks. Yeah, that's true. And that's we really had, you know, we had 5,000 people there yeah. and it was all like outlaw real DJs and yeah. <laughs> not like, you know, these multi-million dollar installations right. and stuff. But at the same time, I, I, I don't want to get too elitist and like knock it. <laughs> but um, I, I it, and especially if that vibes there, like I, I yeah. have no problem with money and people that have money. It's, yeah. It's, 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 that's cool. Yeah. 
It's just interesting how the I've never I've also never been I've been told by friends that I should probably check out the scene because yeah. I probably like it, but I don't know. Like the wilderness is not my favorite <laughs> climate, right. you know. So I don't know. Um, okay, so I guess this can maybe this is the last question. Sure. Um, what what commentary? Or it's a two part question. What commentary would you give to sort of address the current climate because? We have, you know, what happened in New Zealand last week. Mm. We have in this country, I think there's increasingly, and this could be my fault of staying on Twitter too long because I do, <laughs> right. I do think Twitter is a bubble and doesn't necessarily reflect Absolutely. what the majority of people are thinking. But like there is this knee jerk reaction that I've seen on Twitter to white people, first of all, <laughs> which is very disturbing to me. Like just, just the idea of white people doing things has received this this culturally acceptable backlash on twitter which is weird to me and doesn't vibe at all with anything that you've talked about in terms of your experience of how you got out the white power movement in the first place right so any commentary on that and just any advice that you would actually give to people who are still in that movement who may also have uh that that voice gnawing at them telling them you know this is not who you are this is not who you are any advice that you would give to them Absolutely. Uh, well, as the first part of the question, I, I guess this is a kind of a disclaimer. Um, sure. <laughs> I, uh, I went to University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee for uh, three years from 2007 to 2010. Mm-hmm. Didn't graduate, but uh, I went from being an information science major to a Piece, or excuse me, a community education major. Mm-hmm. So in community com- education, I'm taking peace studies and anti-racist mm-hmm. education, sure. and so I, I've I've read a lot of books sure. and written a lot of papers on white privilege and whiteness and mm-hmm. critical race. I, I notice it's studies now. Yeah, it used to be theory then. Right, right, right. Now it's studies. So I, I I'm very well versed in in the entire ideology, mm-hmm. and and I will say when I got out of college. Yeah. I was like, uh, fuck white people. Right. <laughs> I, I was like, yeah, you know, my privilege and rah, 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 rah. Like, yeah. I, I was totally bought into it. I, I was woke before woke was cool. <laughs> before that vocabulary word. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like, b- before it really was a thing. Yeah. And um, what changed that for me was actually, like, working in Milwaukee's inner city mm. uh, and, and also working with people worldwide to try to counter violent extremism. Right. And, and it really boils down to violent extremism it, along with systemic racism, mm-hmm. along with uh, patriarchy, mm-hmm. along with oppression. Mm-hmm. Like all these things, they all have a prerequisite mm. of separatism. Okay. It, without that separatism, none of them function. Right. And essentially when somebody says to me like, we're more different than alike and you can't understand what I've been through because of the color of your skin. Mm-hmm. It's a form of separatism. Right. I see what you're it, saying. it fosters separatism. Right. So for people who, it, and another kind of core principle that I've come to adopt that is really explains my problem with woke orthodoxy and mm-hmm. <laughs> the whole yeah. social justice scene yeah. is um, this idea of being anti whatever. Right. Like I'm an anti-racist. I'm right. an anti-fascist, 
and I'm and this is Dharma 101. Like you, you there can be no self without the non-self sure. elements to define it. Sure. So if somebody says they're an anti-racist, I'm like, okay, so without racism, you don't exist. Right. <laughs> like you, you, right. you can't even define who you are right. and what you're about. Um, and, and yeah, that's a privileged thing to say, but I've learned that from black people. Right. You, oh, you, you, you mentioned Daryl Davis. Yeah. Uh, Daryl's a dear friend of mine yeah. and, and he's, is one of my greatest teachers among many. Mm-hmm. Um, so everything I've learned, I've learned from listening to people who would score very high in the intersectional Olympics. Sure. Um, I've from listening to people who have lost everything. Uh, it's really important to me to bear witness to suffering. Mm-hmm. I, I've been to Auschwitz. I've been to Utoya Island where Breivik murdered 69 people. I've mm-hmm. been to Srebrenica where 8,000 Bosniaks were murdered by Serbs. Um, I have dear friends who are survivors of the Rwandan genocide. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've uh, read their books and I've done a lot of work with them. I've, I've worked with a lot of Holocaust survivors. And when I work with these survivors and with people who would really, people who have lost children. Right. Like, they're the last ones who are going to say, well, you can't understand me. Right. Even though they have, like, probably the best, most right to say right. that. Um, so learning from them, I, I see, first of all, I see the harm that separatism causes. Right. Uh, none of those atrocities I just mentioned leading all the way up to Christchurch mm-hmm. and going back to Tree of Life, to Emmanuel AME, to the, um, the Mount Mosque in Quebec, to Oak Creek, Wisconsin. Like, none of those things can function without that separatism. Right. So I, I just, my, my problem with, like, taking white people to task is that it fosters that separatism and makes our society more conducive to that kind of violence. Right. It's sort of a feedback loop. It is, absolutely. Almost. Not only that... Um, Working in counterviolent extremism, I, I'm actually here in, in New York for a NYPD conference on uh, cyber oh, wow. terrorism. Um, working in counterviolent extremism, I, I am quite often asked to like break down the radicalization process. Okay. How does someone become radicalized into a violent extremist ideology of any sort? And what I've come up with after doing this for nine years mm-hmm. all over the world is that it's a push and pull process. Okay. So if you use the so-called Islamic State as an example, because that's kind of like, that's the thing of violent right. extremism, the, the members of that group are pulling people in mm-hmm. with their mantras, with their slick like memes and social media, uh, and, and also like face-to-face conversations. Sure. That's the pull part. Sure. But that radicalization process can't happen without a push happening also. Right. And so... They need all the non-Muslims on Earth to hate all the Muslims right. on Earth. Like right. all the violence they commit is meant to make your day-to-day Muslim guy's life miserable. Right. It's meant to provoke violence, like what happened in Christchurch. Right. And they can't do that by themselves. Right. They need Joe pissed off white guy to come be their agent, and that's right. exactly what that fool in New Zealand did. Right. He he was putty in their hands. Um, that's the push element. Mm. Now, the same thing happens with the white power movement. Mm. The, we, we talked about um, these oppression narratives earlier on. Sure. Uh, you know, we're trying to rouse our people to rise up and fight against this oppression that's holding us down. And the narrative of white supremacist oppression is that white people are the victims. Right. And white people are oppressed. Right. 
And when you're a white kid and you go to college nowadays, and you're you're there's some colleges honestly where you have to take a course in your whiteness, right? <laughs> and and if you don't like buy into this lock, stock, and barrel, mm-hmm. and ask what hoops you need to jump through in order to be an ally, mm-hmm. you are like by default a, a Nazi, right? I don't know how many young Muslim kids I worked with who were treated like terrorists. And so they became. And they said, if you're going to treat me that way, I might as well be a terrorist. So another Maya Angelou quote. (laughs) (laughs) Right on. Beautiful. Maya Angelou is my spirit animal, if you can't can't tell. Maya Angelou said, if you tell someone over and over again that they are nothing, that they account for nothing, that they are less than nothing, they will eventually say to you, oh, you think I am nothing? I will show you where nothing comes. And then they will become even worse than how you have accused them Mm. of being. That that nails it. Isn't that powerful? That's exactly what it is. So so when you and and, and I have to say this, I we need to talk about whiteness. Yeah. What the hell is whiteness? Who's white? Sure. Who's not? Um. What what does whiteness mean? What what has it meant for human society over the past five hundred years? Mm-hmm. Like we got to have those conversations. Mm-hmm. They're difficult conversations to have. Mm-hmm. That's what the whole idea of like white fragility is. Right. <laughs> like, well, white fragility is white people are afraid to talk about race. It, are we talking about race or right. are we having a unilateral like this is what's up and you right, either right, agree right. or you're a Nazi? Right. That that's not <laughs> a different. discussion. Exactly. Right. And and so what happens is is you got five white kids in university, um, two of them buy into their privilege checking and go off in that direction. The other three are like, I don't really agree with this. So they have, there's no middle ground. Right. They have nowhere there's to no go. There's space for them to go. And then you got the alt-right over here saying, yeah, we do identity politics for white people. Right. Come on over by us. Yeah. And, it, and it's much easier to do that than it is to do that difficult work to like look at the historical suffering that race has caused and continues to cause. Sure. So my huge issue with um, things that are are plainly Mm -hmm. anti-white, even though, like, if you say anti-white, no, you're a Nazi now. Right. (laughs) Even though, like, you know, read the root or whatever. People are like, they call them white people or... Oh, right, yeah, (laughs) These little phrases. I mean, just, like, vicious, like, white, get out of here. I'm melanated. Um, By the way, that's, uh, I think that's coming from something happening within them oh, I, oh of course which is, yeah, which yeah is absolutely like there's a no, it totally there's a correlation is. here it, it, no it totally is <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it's yeah. um hurt people hurt people mm-hmm. and and the fact is is that the construct of race has caused massive massive suffering for 500 years yeah and there's all that historical weight behind it and it's still causing mm-hmm. suffering and so i can't blame anyone who's hurting for yeah. acting that way I, I but but again what i question is like what are you trying to bring about right I have a personal mission statement, which is I want to bring about a society where all people are valued and included. Mm-hmm. Anything I do, and, I, and I'm not perfect, I mess, there's all kinds of times where I ask myself, does that work towards your mission statement, what mm-hmm. you just did? Yeah. I'll be like, no, it doesn't. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to try to do better. Yeah. But like, I, I think it's important for people, especially if you're activist-oriented, like really get an idea of the society you want to bring about Definitely. And then ask yourself if what you're doing is is working toward that. So I, I the we can't just like pretend race doesn't exist. I, I I'm not colorblind. Right. But at the same time, I don't think it's possible for race to exist without racism. Right. It's it's just as long as there is race, there will be racism. Sure. 
So you can't very well be anti-racist and then go, there's all the white people, there's all the black people. (laughs) The black people can do whatever they want. The white people can't do this, this, and this, and they have to do this, this, and this. Like that's, you're not diminishing the race that racism comes from. Right. So it's, and and sure, it's easy for me to say that because I'm a straight white guy. (laughs) I get it. Yeah. I, I don't think it makes it any less true. Um, and then as far as the, the last part of your question, I think, uh, what I tell people who are in the movement still uh, is that I live their life. Mm -hmm. Like for seven years, I've been where they have been and I've heard everything that they have to say a million times. Mm -hmm. I've said it a million times, probably better than they'll ever say it. Mm -hmm. And they don't know what it's like to live my life. Mm. So we're in New York City now. This is one of my favorite places on the planet Earth. Mm -hmm. I'm here about once a month. Mm -hmm. Um, I may end up moving here, actually. Mm -hmm. And one of the many reasons I love this city is just because of, like, the hyper diversity that you encounter everywhere. Sure. Um, And not just, like, bougie Manhattan, you know, seeing everybody from all over the world, but, like, all these little, like, neighborhoods and enclaves where there's, like, literally every country on the planet kind yeah. of recreated in, in, in microcosm um, it, that are like open and, and that people go sure. in and out of and that like kind of merge together and create this very unique place. Right. Um, I, I love that. Yeah. It's, it's just like, this is my dream place to be. Yeah. And it's, it's because I, I've practiced a, a love for diversity for well over two decades, mm-hmm. but also because I never lose sight of the fact that 30 years ago, Walking down the exact same block I'm about to walk down when we leave here, I would be terrified. Mm. And the only thing that's changed is is New York City's changed a bit in the past thirty years. But <laughs> the 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 main thing that's changed has been my lens that I look at the world through. Mm-hmm. And no one is responsible for that lens but me. Right. And so once I understand that, like, well, if if my lens tells me that white people are different and superior and at war with everybody else what's the effect is that going to have on my reality? Right. Whereas if my lens tells me that this experience, this human experience that we all co-create with each moment is a primally, basically good thing that you can always be grateful for no matter what, mm-hmm. how is that going to affect my life? Right. And, and your reality will change according to the lens absolutely. that you choose sort of where <laughs> to put, to, it depends upon you know, what frames, what glasses you, cho- you choose exactly, to wear. Exactly, exactly. And that is how you will see the world. You can be nearsighted. <laughs> you can be totally. farsighted. Or you can see twenty twenty. It depends. But you get to choose the lens that you are going to wear, those those bifocals, you know. What what greater news yeah. to, for a human that being. That you have the choice. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that's why, it, you know, it's easy for me to talk about, well, you know, oppress people this, oppress people that. But I one of my other greatest teachers is Chick. Not Han, who was a Vietnamese Buddhist monk, mm-hmm. um, very active and protesting. Oh, I think I read about that. He's course. unbelievable. Yeah. He, he was a mentor of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, he was uh, a huge anti-war activist during mm-hmm. the Vietnam War era, but despised by both sides. Mm. Um, and he, he was horribly, horribly oppressed mm. throughout his life, uh, just facing horrific circumstances. And throughout it, he's just like, yeah. Like I'm working to stop this messed up situation, but there's nothing you can do to me. Right. Like you can't break how I look at the world. Right. Like yeah, it's not up to you. 
Right. It, it, and <laughs> he would do it in the most loving, kind way. And it yeah. was, it was, it was, it, 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 it's just like the ultimate defiance. Right. And, yeah. and, and really the ultimate empowerment. Right. And, and I think the more people who, who um, realize that, like the better off we're all going to be as a society. I know I said that that was the last question, but <laughs> this brings up, how, how do you think we can get more people to understand that? Because it seems, we talked about how, we talked about the strength that is required, mm. such strength that is required to be able to adopt this mentality. Right. And that alone seems to be a barrier right. to get people to sort of have this raised state of consciousness. You talk, you talk about woke, right? <laughs> right? This is like on another level. It is. Right? Yeah. So do you have any tips to, I mean, you do this in your work, right? right That's why right. you're here in New York. But yep. but on a macro level, is there any way we could do it or is it each one teach one? You have to have the each one teach one. Like yeah. it won't work without that. Yeah. But on a macro level, I think um, the more of us who are mindful of like our effect on the world around us and like the more of us who are mindful about are you know are we stoking fears um and and it's something i i struggle with daily like i i fully realize there are very acute pressing problems that we face as a species right now Mm -hmm. uh that our society faces and you don't want to take them lightly but at the same time fear uh, um can make them a lot worse right so we just got to be mindful about that fear. But I, what I think is that uh, in Buddhism, there's something called authentic presence. Okay. And it's basically like when you are present for somebody else mm-hmm. and you're, all of you is there, like mm-hmm. as we're talking, I'm not worried about what's happening tomorrow and right. I'm not regretting what happened yesterday and I'm all here for you. Right. Um, you can sense that. Right. And I can sense when you're doing that. Mm-hmm. And it's something that we're, as human beings, we're, 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 like instinctively attracted to that Mm -hmm. uh it's a really important thing for teaching okay like when when you're teaching anybody you 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 got to be all of you there for the people that you're you're, exactly yeah and when you set that example and you do it with joy Mm. and you do it with gratitude Mm. people are going to be like I need that. Right. How do I get some <laughs> right, of that? Right, right, right. And, they'll and, be attracted to right. it. Right. And, and, and want it, yeah. they, they might just ask you that. Yeah. Now, we, our society already does this, but just on very superficial levels. Okay. Um, Instagram is my favorite social media. <laughs> and Instagram is just hopping with all these beautiful people who are, I, it's for whatever reason, I can't, there was some Kardashian Instagram came across a news story. It, it, like, 106 million people follow yeah, this. Just lot. all like, yeah. it, <laughs> just like this really, and, and I, I'm sure they're Kardashian, they're human beings like yeah. anybody else, but yeah. it's, it's just like, we already live in a society where we look at people who have what we deem like wonderful lives and we, right. oh, we want that. Right. I, I want to have my eyebrows done just like that. I want that dress. Right. I want that car. I want that. I want what they have. Right. So that's not a new thing for people, and we're already doing that. Like, what if we can change that to be like, I want that relationship with the world. Mm. I, I want to see the world like that person. Right. I want it. those glasses. That exactly. Glasses exactly. That chose. Exactly. Yeah. And and the glasses really for the lenses, not for the frames. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. This this metaphor is getting deep. Yes. It it's funny because I I wore glasses for a very long time. I wear contacts now, so okay. I definitely fully embrace the metaphor. I, I could, yeah. These these are. 
These are the thin ones, and they're yeah. actually pretty thick. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's it's easier to explain that way, and, and so I, I think that's entirely possible. Yeah. In our society, is and and I and honestly, I think a lot of people of influence are are trying to work in that direction. Sure. Um, but it, it's you know it, inertia is a thing. Mm. If, if if we have a society that's really geared towards superficial bullshit, yeah. It's it's that has inertia. Right. It's going to be hard to stop that motion. Right. It's hard hard to bring it to a stop and then redirect it in a different way. Sure. But um, I I totally believe it can be done. I, I'm an optimist. I think that if we're not terrified of each other, there's nothing that human beings can't solve. Mm. Uh, and I believe that because I see it right. every day. I I work in the most diverse circumstances, their most diverse groups, and and we get stuff done. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Arno Michaelis. Did I pronounce that right? You did. Amazing. Chloe Valdery? Yes! Most people get it wrong <laughs> on the first try. <laughs> but yes, thank you so much for joining the Theory of Enchantment podcast. This conversation was awesome. Absolutely. It was my pleasure, Chloe. And I, I really look forward to like delving more into Theory of Enchantment. Amazing. Yeah, Amazing. Let's, let's wave some peace. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. It's time for this week's portion of Mad Theory of Enchantment Vibes. This week's portion comes from a conversation between Nikki Giovanni and James Baldwin. In this two-hour conversation, which is on YouTube, if you YouTube it and want to check it out for yourselves, there's a point where Nikki Giovanni says, and I quote, Love is a tremendous responsibility. And James Baldwin responds by saying, It is the only one to take. There isn't any other. What an incredible, incredible conclusion for two amazing human beings to come to, two amazing thinkers, poets, writers, authors to come to as they explored how to cultivate and deepen relationships between black and white Americans in the 50s and 60s. And today's quote of the day, very similar to our Mad Theory of Enchantment vibe segment, actually comes from James Baldwin, who was once engaged in a debate in the UK and famously said these words, quote, I have to accept, for example, that my ancestors are both white and black, that on that continent we are trying to forge a new identity for which we need each other. That makes for this week's Theory of Enchantment podcast. I hope you enjoyed. I hope you learned so much from my interview with Arno Michaelis, and I hope you take what you learn and spread it to your communities, to your neighbors, to your schools, and everywhere. Spread love, spread light, and as always, thank you for listening.